You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Amen. You can take your seats, and I hope your Bibles by now are just flopping open to Psalms, so you can turn to the book of Psalms. We have been spending the summer in a series entitled The Summer of Psalms, and I hope it's been a blessing to you. Last week, Chad opened Psalm 103 and showed us how important it is for us to reminisce, to reminisce on the circumstances of our own lives, reminisce on what God has done in his word through his people and all throughout history. And as we reminisce, we are drawn to see God's character so beautifully on display And I hope that as we've been unpacking so many of these psalms and continue to do so over the weeks ahead, that perhaps your presuppositions on what this book of the Bible is have been challenged. Perhaps you're like me, and the book of Psalms has always been a collection of songs or a collection of hymns, and we pretty much cherry-pick our favorites, maybe Psalm 23 or Psalm 100, and simply extract from those some principles and some reminders that we enjoy, but then there's other psalms that we, we pass by. But we've been learning over the last few weeks that the book of Psalms is an intentional compilation of songs and poetry that are intended to show us the character of God, the human condition, and his plan for redemptive history. And so this morning, if you have flopped your Bibles open, maybe your notes from last week were embedded in Psalm 103, we're going to fast forward a few Psalms to Psalm 110. And if you don't have a Bible, grab the ones in the seats in front of you, and you can find Psalm 110 on page 509. And I'm going to read it. I want you to engage with it and ask questions of the text, and then I'm going to invite you to join me as we unpack it. Psalm 110, beginning in the superscript, it says a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now, as I read this, what did you notice? Perhaps, if you're familiar with the New Testament and how the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, you might have seen some quotes from Psalm 110 in the New Testament. In fact, Mark 12, 
34 through 36 is an example of where Jesus quotes this direct psalm. Perhaps you also noticed some topics of royalty. You saw scepter, you saw judge, you saw rule, you saw Zion. Or maybe it was potentially some topics that are difficult to understand, like Melchizedek, what? Or maybe some concepts like corpses filling the earth that you recognize to be challenging. I have two goals this morning, as I often do anytime I preach. The first one is to model what I believe the Holy Spirit and the authors of Scripture intend for us to be the way to read God's Word. The second goal is I believe embedded in this psalm is an opportunity for you and for me that I don't want us to miss. And it's highlighted by the big idea. The true king-priest sets the table for every one of us. Do you see that in the notes? This is the big idea of Psalm 110. The the true priest king, and hopefully by the end of this, that phrase will make more sense, but the true priest king has actually set a table for us to feast. But it's not enough for the table to be set. The question we must ask ourselves is how are we responding to the feast? So we'll see four Ps that will direct us to the opportunity for us to engage with the feast that the priest has set before us. Let's begin by looking at the first P, which is the priest in verse 4. Now typically what I do when I lay out an outline is the first outline point will correspond to the beginning of the section of Scripture that we are studying. But you'll notice this outline point begins in verse 4. It begins in the middle of the psalm. And so the question that you should be asking is, why? And so to, to answer that question, I want to begin by explaining how we can read God's word. We, we read God's word in essentially three ways. I would encourage you to write this down. The first way we read God's word is to read it. <laughs> If you open God's word to any verse, any paragraph, any, any section, you simply read God's word and he will show you something from it. You don't have to have commentaries. You don't have to have lexicons. You can just simply read the Bible in English and the Holy Spirit will teach you. But, but here's what I want us to understand. The way you can tell if the Holy Spirit is teaching you is by this quote. It is less you saying, what does it mean to me, and more, how do my conclusions agree with the rest of Scripture? Beloved, this is so important. As we open this ancient text, as we have the luxury of having translations in our own modern English, The Holy Spirit will teach you, but you must ask the question, how do I know the Holy Spirit is teaching me? And the answer is, it's less about what does it mean to me, and more about how do my conclusions match the rest of Scripture. But very simply, we can open this book and read it, and the Holy Spirit will teach you. But a second way we read God's Word is to linger in it. Would you write that down? I hope some of you have read the Bible this morning in your devotions. Others of you will do it at some point today. Maybe some of you have this goal this week that maybe two or three days this week you'll, you'll read God's word. And all of those are good. 
But when you read God's word, we can move from simply reading it to actually lingering in it. And what does that mean? That means we begin to look at the actual words. We begin to look for patterns in God's words. We, we begin to look at cross-references. And what we're doing is, instead of just reading through these seven verses, we're actually lingering in it. And I submit to you that if you will take that approach, God will show you even more. But then there's a, a third way we read God's word, and that is we understand it on its own terms. Would you write that down? We understand it, the Bible, on its own terms, meaning we have to lay aside our, our modern logic, our modern way of thinking, our modern understanding of literature, and submit to the ancient text. Now, that takes a little bit more work. It requires reading, it requires lingering, but it also requires help. And beloved, I submit to you that if you will do this, your mind's going to be blown. You're going to begin to have the Holy Spirit teach you in a way that the original audience was intended to be taught. And before you know it, things are going to start popping off the page, and the God that is revealed is going to be so much bigger and deeper and wider than you ever imagined. And when you do that, you might be introduced to a concept that I have talked about, and now this morning I'm going to model, and that is a chiasm. A chiasm is a tool that the authors use to draw the reader to the main point of the text. I'm going to have the team put up an image that we are going to use throughout this morning as we study. It's an image that shows the passage that we're studying with different colors that allows us to be able to see how David, the author of this psalm, was drawing the original audience to the main point of the text. See, what he does is he repeats things in reverse order, moving the reader to the middle. The middle is verse 4, the priest. That is the focus of this psalm. And then we'll unpack it, as I believe David intended. So our, our, our attention is drawn to this concept of priest. Now, for those of us who are not in, in a church that has priests, we are tempted to ask the question, what's the big deal of a priest? And here's what I would ask you to write it down. A priest is a mediator. Would you write that down? A priest is a mediator. Imagine that you were traveling to Washington, D.C., you were touring the White House, and somehow you made your way into the Oval Office. There you are, by yourself, nobody with you, and all of a sudden, the president walks in. How do you think that would go down? Probably, um, breaker, breaker, button pressed, swarm, swarm because you're not supposed to be there. But now if the, his chief of staff invited you in and was there with you and gave you credentials, sat between you and the president, introduced you to the president, told him that you were there on the chief of staff's account, that would change everything, wouldn't it? That's the idea of the priest is that in order for a human being to be in God's presence, a mediator is required. 
And so in David's day, that meant that an individual from the tribe of Levi was required. And in fact, only one of those priests could actually enter the dwelling place of God and only do so one day a year on the Day of Atonement. Only one day, only one mediator in between God and man in his presence. Now for the rest of the year, other priests could offer sacrifices and mediate between God and his people, but it was only temporary. That's why Leviticus exists. And you read chapter after chapter of this entrail and that entrail and blood, blood, blood. Because man needs a mediator, but the best the Levites could do is a temporary mediator. So now we see the value of the priest in verse 4. And I'll just tell you, because this is the epicenter, we're going to spend the most time on this verse. But now that we understand the priest is important, now we back up in verse 4, and we see a verb translated sworn. Do you see it in the text? The word sworn means to promise, but it's written in the Hebrew, the original language, in such a way that it draws attention to the subject who is providing the action. Why is this important? Because in my best intentions and with my love for that I have with my daughters, I cannot perfectly and always deliver. But look at the one who is giving the action of the promise in verse 4. The Lord. Do you see it in the text? And even look in your English translation and notice the way that it is written. Big L and then lower caps O-R-D. This means it's translating the name Yahweh, the God of Israel. It is God himself who is making this promise. Therefore, what does the text say? It will not change. In fact, you can write down Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. The Lord says, I'm not like a man. I do not change. This is the one who is promising But we have a problem, don't we? Because if the best the Levites can do is offer a temporary mediation, we have a problem. If a Levite is required to be this priest forever, we have a problem. Because David knew it would be his descendant, verse 1 tells us, that would be this priest. But David's descendants came from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. So we have a problem except for what the rest of the verse says. It says, after the order of Melchizedek. You can write down Genesis chapter 14 and verse 18. This is the story of Abraham going and saving Lot. And after he gathered the 300 men from his household and was able to defeat four kings... He made his way back to his home, and he stopped by Salem, which would later become Jerusalem. And there was a a king there by the name of Melchizedek that the Bible says was also a priest. And then you can write down Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, that reiterates this, that Jesus is a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, by the way, 
If you go to Hebrews 7, 1 through 3, it says that Melchizedek had no genealogy. It says that he did not have a father and mother. And, and I always thought that meant he was a Jedi. Just kidding. I had to throw a Star Wars in there. But that doesn't mean that Melchizedek didn't have a physical mother or father. It doesn't mean that he didn't have a genealogy. What it means is that a genealogy was not required for his priesthood. A genealogy was not required for his king status. And so just like Melchizedek, the Lord has sworn and he has made a legal right for the descendant of David to be that all-important priest, not like the Levites, a priest forever, a priest that is permanent, a priest that gives us access, not to the White House, but to the throne room of God, Revelation 4 and 5. This is the epicenter of Psalm 110, and this should hopefully begin to bubble up some excitement in you. But there are three more Ps. Let's move to number two, the people. So now we're going to move back from the middle of Psalm 110. They'll put the picture up on the screen again, and now we're backing up, and we're looking at the verses above and below the middle. And this is going to focus us on two categories of people. Two groups of people, and how they're identified is how they respond when they see the true priest king of verse 4. And so there's the first group of people that are found implied in verse 5. It says, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. So the first group of people are the people who will be judged because when they see the true priest king, Psalm 2 tells us they see slavery and bondage. Psalm 2 tells us that the kings and the rulers of the earth, when they see the true priest king, want to do what they want to do. They want to be autonomous. They want to act according to their feelings. They want to define truth. And so when they see the true priest king, they realize, no, 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 he is the true king, but we believe this is slavery. And so it tells us here that this group of people one day will be judged. But then if we back up to verse 3, we see your people. These are the covenant people. These are the people who have been saved by the priest king. These are the people that when they see the priest king for who he truly is, look at what it says in the text. They freely offer themselves. I think this is significant. They don't view the true priest king as a Bond, bond, somebody who puts them in bondage. They don't see oppression. They don't see slavery. They actually see on the day of his power hope. Look at verse three. It says, from the womb of the morning. I didn't know what this meant, so I had to really study it. It means literally the beginning of the day. The dawn of the day. You ever had a day that is just horrible and never ends and you fall asleep and you've just been so tired, and then you start to see the light creak through, and you begin to realize it's a new day. You experience Lamentations 3, 20, 22 through 24, and you realize the, the tender mercies of the Lord are, are steadfast, and they're renewed every morning, and there, there's a hope in that, that maybe today will be better than yesterday. 
And that's what the rest of the phrase means in verse 3. The dew of your, or your youth. In the morning, after a hot day, there's, there's dew on the grass. In the morning, in a place where it seems like it never rains, like Olathe. Even though we did have some, all it did is just kind of tease us. But in the morning, you let your dog out, and the grass is wet. There's hope. Youth, there's, there's hope in youthfulness. And the older I get, the more I realize, yeah, there was more hope in youthfulness. See, the people of God see God for who he is, and they see hope. They don't see bondage because of the accountability. It reminds me of this last week. This last week we were watching baseball. I know, go figure, in the Terrell family. And something happened Wednesday night. Some of you know what I'm talking about. In the seventh inning, there was a game between the Yankees and the A's, and all of a sudden, my phone started blowing up, and it said, perfect game. If you're not familiar with what a perfect game means, that means no offensive batter makes it to first or beyond. That is amazing. 27 batters up, 27 outs. It is incredible. And so about the seventh inning, you start paying attention, and so you, we're watching every pitch, and every pitch, my palms were starting to sweat. There was a 3-2 count. We were holding our breath. Our girls were on our bed with us. And we were, we were watching. Wow, one out in the night. Two outs in the night. Three outs in the night. Perfect game. And we were clapping in the Terrell house. We were all Yankees fans for one brief, brief moment in time. <laughs> you know what's fascinating is that after that game, we just all watched along with Herman's teammates. They're all celebrating. They just want to be around the pitcher. They want their picture taken with the pitcher. Now, the Yankees won 11 to nothing. There were some players that had an amazing game, but you know what? All of their interviews were pointing to Herman, the pitcher. None of them were talking about their own accomplishments. None of them were racing into the locker room to, to take a shower and get ready and go on to whatever they wanted to do. They wanted to stay there in the moment. And some of you are thinking, who cares? But listen, when you've spent your entire life around this game, when you've studied it, when some of your greatest memories are listening to a cracking radio feed of WCCO up in Minnesota with your dad, Sorting baseball memorabilia late into the night. This means something. And you stop everything, and you prioritize it, and you want to be a part of it. Beloved, that's what the people of God do. The more that we see him for who he is, the more that we see the true priest king in scripture, the more that he is what scripture says he is, and not something that we feel like we have to be able to wrap our brains around, not something that, that we feel like we can define and we keep letting scripture flood us and scripture stretch us. The people of God will see the true priest king and will want to be a part of it. We'll freely offer ourselves. It'll be a privilege to us that we can give ourselves for him, that we would serve at his church will be a privilege that we would come and worship him on a hot summer day will be a privilege for us. We can sign up for small groups and invest in the life of others and get to know him is a privilege. This is the people that David reveals in verses three and five, two different categories 
described and defined as they respond to when they see the true priest king. We've seen the priest, we've seen the people, but then number three, we'd back up a little bit further. They'll put the picture up on the screen. And in verses two and six, we see his power repeated just in opposite ways. God's power is on display. And we see echoes of Psalm 2. And when we really sit in the truth and reality of what is said, we we, we should be awed by his power. Verse 6, it says, he will execute judgment among the nations. What this means is that there is no one outside of his judgment. There is no corner of the world. There is no secret spot. There is no powerful person that will stand outside of his ruling judgment. And what will happen, it says, that he will shatter them. And he will fill them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. You know, there's always been two families throughout all of history. There's the family of faith and there's the family of self. Those are the two families. The family of faith and the family of self. And the family of self is on display in verse 6. And, and there's, there's embedded in this. And so here again, you can read verse 6 and you'll get something out of it. You can linger in verse 6 and you can get something out of it. But, but if you really dig and you look at that footnote and you get into where that concept is found elsewhere, whoa. Verse 6 says he will shatter literally the head. Can you think of anywhere else in the Bible where God says that something will be bruised in its head? Genesis 3.15. And here what you see is you see echoes of Eden, echoes of Genesis 3.15, that God will bruise, he will defeat, he will kill the seed of the serpent and the serpent himself. That's why it says that there will be Many corpses filled. That means they will be defeated. They will be judged. There will be a victory pronounced by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Here's a quote by Jim Hamilton. Through the agency of the future king from David's line. That's what we'll see in verse 1. So so through the one who is promised in verse 1, God will shatter the kings who prove themselves to be the seed of the serpent by their unrepentance, verse 5, and he will shatter the head of their father, the devil. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen? Because, again, two families in the world, all we have to do is look around and to see how active the family of self is. All we have to do is look in the the mirror of Scripture in our own lives, even if we're saved. Do you you not see the vestiges of the family of self in our own lives? You ever struggle with your thought life? You ever struggle with pride? You ever struggle with anger and just think, why is this happening? There will be a day when it will be completely defeated in our lives. No more errant thoughts, no more pride. No more sorrow, no more suffering. This is power on vivid display. 
So that's the negative side. That's the judgment side in verse 6. But then back up to verse 2. How does this descendant of David have the right? How how does he get this power? Well, verse 2 says, the Lord, and see there again, look at how the the, the name Lord is, is in your English text. This is Yahweh. This is the king of the universe. He sends forth from Zion. Now, what is Zion? Zion is a literal place in Israel, in Jerusalem. And in David's day, he would have associated Zion with God's presence. That's where the temple was. And so David is saying that your your mighty scepter, your tool of sovereign authority, or your symbolic tool of sovereign authority, comes from the dwelling place of God. But, But remember, it's not ultimately David that wrote Psalm 10, is it? In fact, you can write down Mark chapter 12 and verse 36. Jesus says that the psalm was written by David, but he he wrote it by whom? The Holy Spirit. So listen, David is writing from his perspective in his historical context with what he knows to be true. And so he's saying Zion, and he thinks it means here in Jerusalem, here in the physical temple, but the Holy Spirit is like, oh, there's so much more. And because we have the New Testament, we understand that the literal historic place is intended to be symbolic. This happens in the Bible, doesn't it? In fact, would you write these down, and then you can study this later on this week. Would you write down Ezekiel 28, 13, and 14? In Ezekiel 28, 13, and 14, the prophet describes the Garden of Eden, a literal physical place, but he describes it symbolically as the mountain of God. Then you can also write down Hebrews 12.22, where the author of Hebrews describes Jerusalem, the physical place in Israel, symbolically as the mountain of God. And so what we can conclude from that, just as we've been saying in Revelation, that often Revelation shows literal places, but is used symbolically, that's what's happening here in verse 2. The Lord, Yahweh, sends from heaven, from his seat of authority, the symbol of sovereign rule. Here's a quote, Yahweh extends from his heavenly place of absolute authority the scepter of sovereign power. That's what verse 2 should be translated as. That's what gives the descendant of David, the true priest king in verse 4, the right to demonstrate the power that we saw in verse 6, the right to demonstrate the power that we sang about a few moments ago, to save souls. The positive and the negative, the true priest king has this power. But you know what? In our lives and under the sun, we don't really have a good illustration of this, do we? I mean, we could go back throughout all of world history and look at the most powerful rulers, the most powerful nations, the most powerful military, and you know what? There's a tombstone somewhere. 
The nations rise, the nations fall. No nation here on earth lasts forever. And so it's difficult for us to wrap our brains around this. And then when you just think about law, think about law and the rules that are in our world and in our society to punish sin, to punish unrighteousness and support righteousness. There's a whole world out there that's looking for loopholes, isn't it, in the judicial system? And and beloved, eyes up here for a minute, please. This is why I think we struggle with God's sovereignty. Because I think we read in Scripture that God is sovereign and that he's ordaining every molecule of all of history. And we look around and we say, okay, where's something I can look at that makes this make sense? And there's nothing. That's why I think we struggle with God's sovereignty in in that way, just acknowledging it, but in a second way, responding to it the way that we should. The way that we should is it should cause us to tremble. That even a thought that would be displeasing to sovereign God should cause us to tremble. Beloved, this is power. And I would submit to you, just as Ben said from the MacArthur quote a few moments ago, the deeper we get in our knowledge of God, the wider, the higher, the more it stretches us, the more we actually are empowered with a greater capacity to worship. The more we're empowered with a greater capacity to be godly husbands, to actually live joyfully in our singleness, to actually submit to parents. The greater our theology, the more awesome our worship and effective our Christian life. So what do we do with this? Well, we we actually approach his power. We actually dig deep into scripture. And and I think you will go through this, this process that I often do when I get stretched in theology. I have an initial shock. You ever just read something in the Bible and you're like, whoa, no, no, no. Turn the page, turn the page. There's that initial shock of how big God is and the realization, oh man, I've had this small view of God. Because our view of God, beloved, in this life will always be smaller than what it should be. If you're thinking, oh man, I'm thinking of God too big, wrong. <laughs> and so there's that initial shock, but then there's, there's, there's often anger. Anger, why didn't I know this earlier? Anger, why are you so big and I'm so small? Anger, that's not fair. And you you process this from initial shock to anger, and then you move to to questions. Yeah, but, but if this is true, then what about this? And as long as we are constantly keeping our thoughts captive to Scripture, it will result in a fourth step in this process, worship and application, which is Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of the matter is this, fear God, worship And obey him, keep his commandments. So see what David is doing here is he's focusing us on the true priest. He's expanding then in his psalm to see two categories of people. And then he's expanding to show us the power of God in a positive light. And then in a judgment light, which brings us to the fourth P, which is provision. Provision. As I mentioned, Jesus quoted this psalm. This psalm is the most quoted in the New Testament. 
He quoted the psalm in Mark 12, 35 through 37, in Matthew 22, 44 through 36, in Luke 20, 41 through 44, and each of those kind of a different facet to the psalm. And so what is the provision? Well, let's look first of all at verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord Adonai. Now let me explain what this means. The first Lord is describing Yahweh, the, the Father, as we refer to him, the God of Israel, says to my, that's an important pronoun, the my there is David, you can write that out to the side. And then Lord, that's translated in the English in a typecast different than the first mention of Lord, you can write out to the side is Adonai, who is the descendant promised in 2 Samuel 7, 10 through 16. So Yahweh is saying to David's promised seed, what does he say to him? Verse 1, sit at my right hand. Sit at my place of authority. Sit at the position of intimacy. Sit at the position of rulership. Until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, the, the, the idea of footstool is actually an ancient Near East concept. We'll put a picture up on the screen of an Egyptian uh, drawing, etching, that you can see down here in the bottom right, there are enemies who are serving as the footstool of the Pharaoh. And so this imagery means total victory. Total victory by a sovereign ruler. That's the imagery that David is drawing from as he shares what the Lord says to Adonai, to the descendant of David, whom David at this point does not know the identity. When you look at 2 Samuel 10 through 16, it seems like Solomon, his son, is going to be the one who fulfills this. But all you have to do is read about Solomon's life and you realize, not him. And then all the kings of Judah are candidates, and there are some good ones, and there are some really bad ones. And you keep thinking as you're reading this from the original audience perspective, maybe it's Josiah, maybe it's Hezekiah. But we know who it is. It's Jesus Christ himself. So when does this happen? When does the actual victory take place? Well, you can write this down. The crucifixion and the resurrection. That's when it takes place. The, the, the victory is accomplished at the crucifixion and resurrection of the true priest king of verse 4, who is Jesus Christ. Now, there was an announcement of this. You can write this down in Matthew 3.17. Jesus had lived his life about 30 years and then he was baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And do you remember what the voice of heaven said? This is my what? Beloved son. And that was not just a statement to help us English people know. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is an official title. Adam was referred to as the son of God. He failed. Israel was referred to as the son of God. They failed. Solomon and the descendants of, of, of David up to Jesus were all candidates to be sons of God. They failed, 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 failed. And the father says, no, 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 this is the son of God. Oh, that's awesome. But then when Jesus 
died on the cross and rose from the grave. Remember what Matthew 28, 18 says? All authority has been given to me, to the priest king of Psalm 110. So the victory has been accomplished, but there are still skirmishes that are taking place, aren't they? I'm going to have the team put a picture up of a Civil War soldier named John J. Williams. John J. Williams was killed at the Battle of Palmito Ranch in Texas one month and four days after the surrender at Appomattox. The Civil War was over. The surrender had been signed. And yet there were still skirmishes. And I'll tell you what, John G. Williams found that out. Those skirmishes are dangerous. And so, friends, we, we live in the skirmish era. The, the victory has been secured. That's what verse 1 says. The enemies are in the process of being made Adonai's footstool. It's guaranteed, but there are still skirmishes. And so, beloved, listen, we need provision. And that brings us down to verse 7. Verse 7 will show us a clear provision, a shadow of provision, and a fulfillment of provision that will lead us into a time of application. What is the clear provision? Well, verse 7, this one who is promised in Psalm 110 will drink from the brook by the way. What does this mean? It means something spiritual. A living freshwater brook in the ancient Near East was the difference between life and death. So, so this promised one will be the one who drinks from everlasting life, that drinks from the living water, and he does so in a righteous way. That's what the way means. You can write down Psalm 1 because you can go back there and see the two ways that are contrasted, the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. So the clear provision is the true priest king of Psalm 110, verse 4, who drinks from the brook by the way. It also says in verse 7 that he will be having his head lifted up. And what this literally means is he will be exalted. He will be the victorious king. He will be the one who pronounces judgment on the serpent. So Christ is the clear provision in verse 7, but, but it's also intended to be a shadow of what the provision is for us. The shadow of the provision that is for us is what Jesus refers to, would you write this down, in John 7, 37 through 39, when he stands up at the feast and says, the living water comes through me. So, beloved, Christ is the clear provision for us, but the gospel and what we receive through Christ is the shadow of the provision for us. It is responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but then the, the, the actual fulfillment of this is beautifully unpacked in Psalm and Revelation. Would you write down Psalm 2, 8, and 9? I think the team has a screen. Yeah. Look at Psalm 2, 8, 9. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And down in Revelation 12, 5, it essentially says the same thing. 
So here's where the fulfillment comes in, is that the clear provision of Christ and the shadow that is found in the symbolism of the gospel finds its ultimate fulfillment in Christ, who then, in Revelation 2, 26 through 29, gives to us his victory if we show ourselves to be people of faith. Look at what it says in Revelation 2, 26 through 29. The one who conquers, that's somebody who's a believer, That's somebody who's been transformed by the provision of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gives evidence of that in that they keep his works until the end. To that person, he gives authority over the nations. That's what Jesus has promised. That's what Jesus says he has in Matthew 28, 18. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. See, here's the beauty of it is the fulfillment is The victory that Christ won is now offered to us. The table has been set. So will you bow your heads and close your eyes because now comes the most important moment of this morning. Your response. The most important opportunity this morning is are you partaking in the feast? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you admitted that God is holy and that he demands perfection and there's no way you can do anything on your own to fulfill that expectation? Therefore, you are rightly condemned to hell. Have you admitted that? Have you come to a place where you believe that this true priest king from Psalm 110 is Jesus Christ and because of his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, and his place at the right hand of God, he has done everything that is needed for you to be saved? Do you believe that? Then have you confessed your sins and committed your life to King Jesus? Oh, friend, if you haven't, now is your moment of salvation. Right at this very moment. If you understand this and have never responded in this way, all you must do is rely on the completed work of Christ, call out to God, ask him to forgive you, and commit your life to Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And we will have members of our prayer team at the ends of the stage, and what they will do is point you in the direction to grow in your newfound faith. Feast. And then, dear friend, if you have given your life to Christ, are you actively feasting at the banquet? Do you view the true priest king as someone you want to be around? Someone you don't want to go to the locker room. You don't want to talk about yourself. You want to point to him. You want to be around him. And if he asks you to freely offer yourself, yes, what an honor. Is that where you are? Are you diving deeply into his power? Are you coming to his word with expectation and anticipation for him to reveal himself? And whatever that revelation is, even if it stretches you, even if it convicts you, even if it's difficult to understand, you're going to go to it. You're going to understand it and seek to understand it and apply it and keep coming back wanting more. Is that where you are? Maybe if it's not, maybe you could call out to the Holy Spirit and ask him to continue to light that fire in your soul. The true priest king prophesied by David is the differentiator between the two people groups. He has the power both to judge and to save. And he offers the provision 
of his gospel. And it's not just a transaction, beloved, that we look back to. It is an ongoing reality in our lives. How are you responding to the feast? Father, I thank you for the true priest king. We need a mediator desperately. Even right now, the the ability to to pray to you, the God of the universe, and to, to know that you hear us and to know that you respond favorably is because of our mediator, Jesus Christ. I thank you that there is an extended work of Christ through your Holy Spirit. I thank you that he is at work right now. Holy Spirit, would you save people? Would you take saved people and mature them? Would you take mature people here? I I sense there are people here who know a lot about you and have lived a life of faithfulness with you, but they're on the sidelines. Would you goad them? Would you light a fire under their seats? As we move to three services, we need them. We need them to get off the sideline and to pour into others, whether that's opening doors to welcome people, whether that's getting in with the kids and getting on the ground and playing with them and planting and watering seeds of the gospel, whether that's getting up here and being on worship team or or helping with production or being on the prayer team or being a small group leader. We, We need those mature people to multiply. And then, God, I pray that that multiplication would take place in us planting a church. Would you, would you raise up a group of people in this room and watching online who when they hear the opportunity and they hear the where, that they will, they will raise their hand and, and they will freely give. Would you bring us a church planter whom you have wired and gifted that will effectively lead that church? We, we long for that. And we know you're gonna answer that. Because when we ask according to your will, not only do you hear us, but you will respond. So we've asked a lot, but this is nothing for you, the God of the universe, Yahweh. We lay this at your feet, looking forward to your answer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.